Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and the early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing. And today, I want to ask you something. Can you fight the moonlight or does the moonlight fight you? Well, I'm not I- really sure. <laughs> I don't know, Margot, but it's going to get to your heart. <laughs> At first... This week's episode was going to be about one of the greatest slumber party movies of the 2000s, Coyote Ugly. But then we got to talking about Covert Affairs stars Piper Parabo. And not only was she arrested last year for protesting Brett Kavanaugh, and she supported Elizabeth Warren in the primaries, realized that maybe we just stand this progressive queen. So we just titled this the Piper Parabo episode, but really it's mostly a Coyote Ugly episode because the other Piper Parabo movie that we are going to be talking about Slapper She's French slash She Gets What She Wants. It goes by two titles. You know, I think Slapper She's French, when it went to like TV movie status, was maybe a little too risque. But mm. we will talk about that. It's, um, you know, a little less is known about this movie because it kind of misses the mark of cult classic status that somehow the elements came together just right. The moonlight hit just right for Coyote <laughs> Ugly to become... A perfect cult classic. I mean, tell me the difference. I mean, besides the fact that Slapper She's French is free on Amazon right now and Coyote Ugly you have to pay for. Like, I feel like that tells you, you know, the taste level. Oh, yeah. Like, you know what? You got to pay for this. 
I mean, really, truly, what I can, the difference is just like we, at the moment you look up Coyote Ugly, despite it, in addition to it being its 20th anniversary, I mean, it was just think piece after think piece after think piece. Slap her, she's French. I, I tried so hard <laughs> to find. It just, was just such one, a struggle. Just one. <laughs> and And I know, well, I don't know. I feel like if they did like an oral history of it, the way that they did with like Drop Dead Gorgeous, you know, yes. how they, how we finally discovered in one of our past episodes um, that it was mishandled in terms of its release to DVD and then streaming. And that's sort of why it kind of fell off the radar and people couldn't find it. And anyway, in the oral history, when you interview these people who worked on the movie, then you get a sneak peek. And I feel like the players in Sopper She's French deserve a think piece. They deserve a what happened here vulture article but Mm -hmm. you know we are just old millennials we don't kind of have that pull so you know without further ado as tyra famously told us while recycling glass bottles at the coyote ugly bar fuck yeah um i have been to the coyote ugly bar in new york and it was in that awkward time between the movie not quite having like a full-blown like cult following like it does now Uh. and it hadn't and because it hadn't quite hit like the peak nostalgia factor. So it was like kind of half empty. And the coworkers that I was with were like, all right, let's go to like your weird tourist bar that you're dying to go to. And it was maybe 4 p.m. I had a light beer left. Didn't get to dance on the bar, which was extremely disappointing because after I saw this movie at a slumber party, it, a friend of mine and I, we <laughs> made a, a, a strange child pack that were like, when we're adults, we're going to go to the Coyote Ugly Bar and dance on the bar too. <laughs> Uh, like only like two super slutty children would like make a pact to do that. Anyway, I have gone on to dance on several bars, just not the Coyote Ugly one. It was sort of like in the sad like tourist bar, um, like halfway between like a relic that might go bankrupt and like on the cusp of like suddenly becoming nostalgic. It was not a good time to go. So I'd, I I would want to go again, you know, in normal times. But um, a friend of mine told me that he went to the one in Colorado and I was like, mm, I don't think that counts. It's very strange that they franchised it. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of my research. So I remember reading about this and like what Lil, the real Lil has been up to since the movie came out. And I believe it's like 20, there are like 29 franchises around the world. I know. Well, so we read the same, um, we yes. read the same Ringer oral history, yes, yes, right? For yes. the 20th anniversary. Do we serve Yeah, when bar, they said that they had one, like, they're like, oh, in Vegas and also in Japan. I was like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. You have a Coyote Ugly in Japan? Why? Why? I don't it's truly, truly a white trash tourist bar if I've ever heard of any. Um. But at, I feel like at least I, but you know what? Better than having like a Hard Rock Cafe, which like what movie is based on Hard Rock Cafe? No movies. Yeah. So I'd take a Coyote Ugly Bar, although it's a strange, you know, American export to put in different countries. But you know what? I'm glad that Lil, the original owner, made some money. Oh, for sure. I mean, kind of incredible. She's made quite a quite a fortune for herself franchising that bar. I I don't know about you. I mean, just reading that Ringer article, I read like a, several other articles and I even read the original Elizabeth Gilbert article that inspired this movie. Just the oh. evolu- yes, the evolution of what the bar was in the 90s to what it was, you know, shown in the movie to what it has become now is fascinating and just like a prime example of what, you know, what can happen when a movie 
shows up and then life ends up imitating the art, which is really something um, that happened in the case of these Coyote Ugly franchises. Mm hmm. For me, I mean, like when I, you know, when you read about the beginning with um, Elizabeth Gilbert, it's, um, you know, she published this article in GQ in 1997, and she had been bartending at the Coyote Ugly Saloon uh, for a couple of years, and the saloon had opened in 1993. And she talks about, it's this, you know, kind of Southern honky-tonk themed bar, like a little bit Confederate flags everywhere, which, you know, 2020 probably <laughs> would not fly and probably shouldn't have you know, flown at that point, literally. Um, but it's it's very much, <laughs> very much a dive. They're obviously pandering to their audience because before it became this phenomenon, it was sort of this like divey bar that had, you know, locals and regulars. And I'm sure those dudes, you know, had a Confederate flag shirt or four. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> Crusty yes. dudes at bars always do something. Yes. So I even have the list of, in the original article, she talks about the cast of characters who go to this bar, the, the locals, if you will. There's Redneck Lou, oh, okay. Bud Light Lou, Chino, Gino, <laughs> Anders, Morris, <laughs> Ruben, Herbert, and his dog Anders. Hoover. Many faces oh, of Eve, <laughs> many faces of Eve Janet, who is an addict, if I recall correctly. The plant, uh, plant man, thanks. the deaf guy, little okay. Vinny, uh -huh. big daddy, mm. beer truck, Nazi Dave, <laughs> yikes, Vietnam Bob, spit take Phil, Idli the pump, the plumber, Bruce the carpenter, <laughs> Bill the photographer, wow. Ashley the Whoa. junkie, Slav the pool player. <laughs> That sounds like me and my friends from college comparing the dudes that we slept with. Like, we all gave them, like, weird nicknames. Like, there was one called not – oh, one friend slept with a dude that we called not Harry Potter. Another one, $2 bills because he only paid in $2 bills. Um, <laughs> was he a Hamster hands. <laughs> no, he just liked to do – he just liked to do ecstasy and acid on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, its own dark magic. Yeah, hamster hands, skinny, fat. Um, there were a couple more. Yeah, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but uh, yeah, Courtney always had the best ones, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, really, I, I think before I kind of go into more of the history of this whole movie, I guess we can do like a quick plot overview. I'll keep it short since most of you, if you listen to our podcast, there is a 90 6% chance. This is one of my Emily stats that I just brought in. It's been a while since I, I threw one out there, oh, yeah. but there's a 96. Did you, do you add Emily stats to your resume next to um, proficient Con and confident I believe, in Photoshop? Yeah, confident in Photoshop. Not yet, but um, certainly will in that next edit. Um, so great at stats, asterisks. <laughs> if you are a part of the 4% of li listeners who have not watched Coyote Ugly, what are um, these numbers? I don't know. I mean, they're the numbers like Fox News, like I will never work for you, but, no, give, but give me a call because I think that's that's the kind of brain work that I'm putting into these stuff. Because you can say not numbers as well. And since it's, E rudely canceled a bunch of those like E pop news shows where you can also give weird facts and just cite random sources, <laughs> this is where they've shoved you off to. They've gentrified you right on over to Fox News. Oh, God. I mean, I know I, I went really blonde earlier this year when we could go to hairdressers, but I refused to wear the shift dresses to become a real fox blonde. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> plot. The world is dark enough. Let's move past this. <laughs> 
The plot overview of Coyote Ugly. All right. So Violet Sanford, played by our girl Piper Parabo, is a small town Jersey girl from Perth Amboy. She has big dreams of becoming a famous songwriter. She leaves her small town best friend, played by Melanie Linsky, and her protective father, played by John Goodman, for the big, bad New York City. She quickly learns, as most naive small town girls do in these movies, that you can't just show up to record companies' offices with your demo tapes and just like hand them to the receptionist because this is like the real world and this is like post.com boom New York City. People don't have time for that shit. So you have to go to open mics. But Violet has stage fright and she's convinced that it's hereditary because her mom, who passed away a few years ago, couldn't cut it as a performer. Um, anyway, one night she sees a bunch of girls in a diner who look like they're having a great time. She finds out that they are coyotes and they work at this bar called Coyote Ugly. She stops by to get a job. One day she meets the owner, Lil, a small town Violet, after her first night of initiation at this crazy bar, ends up getting hired as a bartender to replace Zoe, played by Tyra Banks, who's leaving the bar for law school. The other coyotes she works with include Cammie, played by Isabella Miko, and Rachel, played by Bridget Moynihan who's the like hot but mean chick who's going through anger management courses. Meanwhile, while balancing her job in songwriting, she encounters Kevin O'Donnell, played by Adam Garcia, a honky Australian fry cook, fish market thrower, and comic book fiend. They strike up a romance where she tries to overcome her stage fright, which one night happens uh, when she has to sing to break up a fight at a bar all of a sudden much like christine aguilar in burlesque uh she is now doing the singing thing in addition to dancing on the bar things are going well so much so I much mean, burlesque crossover with this there, movie there, it's there crazy truly is truly truly is things are going well at the bar there's even an article about it her in the village voice and there's like a picture of her dancing um, all of this is short-lived when her dad shows up to the bar after seeing the article and he's like, are you a stripper? But she's not. But then there's conflict. And then meanwhile, Kevin set up a gig for her by hawking one of his comic books. Um, she doesn't show up because Lil won't let her leave. Eventually, Kevin shows up. There's a big fight with one of the bar patrons. She loses her job. She and Kevin are on the outs. And all seems lost. And she want, goes back to Jersey, you know, later after her dad gets into a car accident. And it's like, uh, she thinks she's going to move back. Her dad's like, don't do this. You know, I, that's not true about your mom. She didn't have the stage fright. She didn't end her career because of that. You need to chase this dream of yours. So then she goes back to New York, sends her demos, makes amends with Lil and the people at the bar. She gets a call back to perform at the Bowery Ballroom. After some initial stage fright, she nails the song Can't Fight the Moonlight, which we hear throughout the movie along with her other original songs. And then we end with Leanne Rimes performing her song at Coyote Ugly. Everybody's celebrating Jersey, which is what Violet is known at at the bar. <laughs> and uh, Violet and Kevin get back together. And that is, I think I summarized it pretty well with a little bit of like important detail, obviously. Yes. Yes. It is truly a great movie. I mean, everything that a middle school millennial girls sleepover dreams should be made of like the singer songwriter with big dreams edge there's fun dancing dancing on bars cowboy hats and boots i mean it's 2001 2002 um, 
in bidding a rhinestone. On a, a, bidding on a hot guy and yes. having that be like a fun thing. That was I mean, a big deal. It's a great, really some great, great Oh, the scenes. leather I was, pants. I remember oh, yes. people were very into like, ooh, when I'm older, I'm going to wear like cool leather yeah. pants. I don't know if anyone bought a single pair of leather pants. So there, yeah, ultimately, I actually have a really interesting thing about that. So they... <laughs> one of the articles that I read, what? Um, the yes, so the fashion uh, designer that they interviewed. Oh yes, <laughs> sorry, I lost my place here. Okay, yes, okay. Oh, back to- I know the story. the The lady, uh, the woman who was the costume designer on Coyote Ugly, made all of their clothes like yes. fit to tailor their body. Yeah, and there's like that they quote had to put- from Bridget yes. Moynihan that said that she still has a leather pants because they're the they were custom made for her. And she's like, they're the best fitting pants that I have. I still have them in like, I guess she said it this year or maybe last year. I forget. There was also like an older article that had an interview with Tyra and Piper Parabo and, um, and like a, it was sort of similar to the ringer article, but with more of the cast involved, it was one of those retrospectives where Tyra kept talking about how like, I want to do a sequel. I want to do a sequel, which, you know, I'm sure you'll get to that. I mean, really, it was uh, just ultimately, yeah, like they put, they made them custom, custom leather pants or pleather pants, and they like had gussets in them so that they could, you know, stretch around kind of like how they make yoga pants. Like, Mm -hmm. really, what's fascinating about this fashion, like, like people say, it's a perfect encapsulation of early 2000s fashion, like. The, yes. the whole cowboy, rhinestone cowboy look was so big during that movie. And I would say like Madonna's music phase was that's that album came out, I believe, in 2000, oh, 2001. Right. So that was there's a lot of that, too. And turns out that the woman who was the costume designer, Marlene Stewart, in this movie also worked on Madonna's Vogue music video, which is very different, huh. obviously. But she, right, you know, but- this is the time of like pleather pants, um, leopard like camisoles and like cowboy hats and really low rider jeans with like big rhinestone buckle. Like it had a moment from 2000 to 2003. And I was remembering personally, like obviously I was in middle school, so I wasn't going to be going around like dressed like most of the, the characters in Coyote Ugly, but definitely had that influence. Like I had a couple of tank tops that were like had rhinestones on them and like fake, you know, boot emporium uh, businesses advertised on them with like, you know, cowboy boots and like a uh, knee length skirt. So it was like, there was definitely. Oh boy. Yeah. I had several pairs of cowboy boots for whatever reason that I wore with vintage dresses throughout middle school and high school. That was a whole look kind of like, you know, whatever Rachel from friends wearing a um, t-shirt underneath like a sundress or whatever. It was the same concept. I don't know. And it was partly inspired by this insane movie, but also there was as immediately after there was a cowboy boot trend, like you were saying a rhinestone cowboy pinup look that was also aided by Madonna's album. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, what a time. So when I did my research for all of this <laughs> movie, I really before we kind of started reading all these think pieces, I did not realize this was based on a piece that Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love, wrote. And Me in fact, neither. <laughs> in fact, it was know. her first big piece. Like she had been, I believe she, I know. Had, she had been published maybe once, but ultimately was getting like rejection letter after rejection letter. And then, I was going to say, I really resonated when she said I was in the rejection phase of my career. I was like, me too. <laughs> Um, But she's like, so at this point, meanwhile, she's working at this Southern honky tonk 
theme bar in New York in the East Village. The bar is called the Coyote Ugly Saloon. It's owned by a woman by the name of Liliana Laval or Lil, which you'll remember from the movie. Um, she'd worked at the bar across the street called the Village Idiot and saved up some money to buy her own place because the guy who owned the Village Idiot was really sexist towards female bartenders. The name comes from, as mentioned in the film, the slang term coyote ugly, which refers to the feeling of waking up after a one night stand, discovering that one's arm is underneath someone who is so physically repulsive that they would gladly chew it off without waking the person just so they could get away without being discovered, which is what coyotes are known to do if stuck in a trap to facilitate escape. Lil's premise was that the Coyote Ugly Saloon, which opened in 1993, would be made up of all female bartenders and they would dress sexy and such, but they would be the ones with the power in the situation. Obviously, I mentioned the cast of characters earlier, but these individuals who become regulars at the bar um, are a focal point of Elizabeth Gilbert's article. So as I said earlier, as we said earlier, she was in the rejection letter phase of her career. Um, she decides to write this piece on her experience working at the bar called The Muse of the Coyote S- Ugly Saloon, and it ends up getting published in the March 1997 issue of GQ. Um, there are a few parts of that article that will make their way into the movie scripts, including not serving water at the bar, although the hell no H2O part, I think, is strictly script. Um, and then taking the shot and then making it look like you're chasing the shot with something else, but really you're just spitting it into back of a bottle of beer or a glass of Coke. Ultimately, the Coyote Ugly Saloon had bartenders dancing on the bar, but this was more out of spontaneous performance, not exactly like a coordinated dance like it was in the movie. The point of view in the original article is actually really interesting because it is a really told in this point of view of like, this is how we female bartenders see you male patrons at the bar. In this essay, she mentions meeting her then husband while bartending at this bar, which I then realized is the first husband she mentions in the book Eat, Pray, Love. And later, if you've seen the movie, is played by Billy Crudup. And I was like, oh, reading this article from like 1997 and thinking, oh, we don't know everything that happens after this. Um, After this article is published, (laughs) Jerry Bruckheimer, of all people, because this is the late 90s and like he goes from Armageddon to Coyote Ugly. I don't know. Um, Jerry Bruckheimer. (laughs) He is wild. Talk about wild card producer. And then he's like, I'm just going to veer on over to Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, I love Jerry Bruckheimer. I love Jerry Bruckheimer. He's insane. Insane. Bruckheimer Productions at the time was tied to Touchstone Pictures, so it was all under Disney. Uh, The first writer of the script is Gina Wenkos, who will go on to write the script for The Princess Diaries and The Perfect Man, which is that movie with Heather Locklear and Hilary Duff. While the WGA gave... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I totally forgot about that movie. While while the Writers Guild of America will give Wenkos the credit for the script, Kevin Smith, one of the people who worked on the rewrites and versions of it, has said eight people, actually. There were eight people who worked on this, including him and Carrie Fisher. Bruckheimer brought in Kevin Smith because he really liked chasing Amy and wanted that kind of vibe for the script. So Smith worked as a script doctor, mostly on the dialogue. Apparently, one of the only things that really struck from his version, which was known as the quote unquote raunchy script, were the names of the characters, his version of John Goodman's dad character. And then, which makes sense because Kevin Smith's from New Jersey. He probably got like the best vibe, you know, for that character type. Um, And then the one dialogue line that really stuck in the script was the joke Cammy makes. Well, it's not really a joke, but um, Cammy, I think, literally means it when Violet tells her she loves her after teaching her the spit the shot back into the bottle trick. Cammy's response is that she isn't a lesbian 
and that she played in the minor leagues but never went pro. And that is like one of Kevin Smith's like main lines that li- that stayed in the movie. <laughs> yikes, 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 oh, yikes, yes. yikes, yikes. Yes. 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 Meanwhile, um, in terms of directing, David McNally was tapped to direct, which is crazy because at the time, his major credit was a Budweiser Super Bowl commercial with a lobster. The casualness of white men getting major projects in many of our old millennials movies is just astounding. It's like this guy who had directed a beer commercial. (laughs) Staggering. I mean, it still happens now. Just look at what happened to Star Wars. They're like, oh, well, just like let any old dude who directed Book of Henry to swoop on in and just be in charge of stuff. Whoops, never mind. Take it all back. I mean, or even look at DC or Marvel or any of the big franchises. They love to scoop up a random white man who's never done anything before and doesn't deserve it to essentially fuck up whatever they're trying to do. I mean, and I looked at the budget. I mean, this movie made a lot of money, but it was a $45 million budget. I don't know where like this money came from. I don't know where this money, where this money went. Jerry other than Bruckheimer, I guess. It's I gotta mean, be Jerry Bruckheimer. Because like, I'm thinking the, all the actors in this, like the biggest name is John Goodman. If I'm thinking really like Tyra's big, but this is like one of Tyra's first acting gigs. So she's not getting paid a ton. Maria Bello had done a couple of indie movies, but Piper Parabone, like Adam Garcia and all of them were newbies. But anyway, that's, that's more your real house. I will, we'll get to that later, but McNally, the director will take versions of the script, merge them into something that was meant to be a bit more PG 13, which as Kevin Smith points out the irony that the original article in GQ was written by a woman. The script was originally written by a woman, all telling a story about female empowerment with the first rewrite being done by a woman, Carrie Fisher. And then ultimately men led by Jerry Bruckheimer take over the whole operation to broaden the female audience for this movie. Truly (laughs) astounding. (laughs) Which makes... Uh, I just feel like just watch white men work. I'm not surprised by any of this. I feel like this is fairly common, especially at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still happens now. And but, Mc- McNally know. does point out that this movie could not have been made by men in 2020. Like he attended a screening of Hustlers where Lorena Scarf. Uh, Lorraine, yeah. Sco- learn from a Scavaria. learn from a pro, McNally. Okay, uh, our girl where? knows what she's doing. Where Lorenz Scafaria was being interviewed, and that is how the movie kind of can make sense by being made by a woman. Like, ultimately, again, if Hustlers was directed by a man, like, no one would have seen this. Ultimately, the final version with the singer-songwriter angle and all of that, with less of a focus on the actual bar culture, was done to broaden the audience, and to be honest, is probably why it ended up becoming a sleepover staple for preteens and teenage girls, which Elizabeth Gilbert to this day is amazed at this how this ankle ended up happening since that was obviously not the premise of the original GQ article. Shooting essentially most of the locations for this were in New Jersey and they started in New York, um, but they were having a lot of trouble filming there. Um, so they originally tried to film this in the meatpacking district in New York to give it as authentic a vibe as possible. But this is being filmed in 1999. So the meatpacking district was literally a meatpacking district still. 
And in the ringer piece that we were talking about earlier, Lori Balton, the location scout, was recalling there was like a layer of fat on the streets and there were rats everywhere. They used a bar in New York called Hogs and Heifers for the Coyote Ugly shooting locations, but the weather was terrible because New York was caught in back-to-back hurricanes. So they ended up filming a lot of the New York scenes later in LA. The same location scout was recalling that there were a lot of bar scenes that were actually filmed in a theater on Broadway in LA at one of the bars in those theaters. Um, as for some movie magic, they were so scared people were going to fall off the bars when they were dancing that they put a bunch of Coca-Cola on it. So it was so sticky and they had spotters to get all the actors they fell off. And it was a super intense shoot because there were bottles and glasses everywhere. The bar was on fire all the time. And the actors were often, obviously often wearing heels. One of the other big pieces of the music is of this whole movie, of course, is the music, um, which a lot of the success will come from the soundtrack, which includes four songs performed by Leanne Rimes and written by legendary singer-songwriter Diane Warren. As music cap supervisor Kathy Nelson pointed out, the movie actually mirrors quite a bit of what Diane Warren's personal story is, that she used to go to happy hours at a bar near the record label and would hand people her cassettes when they came out of the office. Um, Rhymes and Warren had worked together when Rhymes sang her song, How Do I Live?, which was written by Diane Warren. It was going to be on the Con Air soundtrack, but ended up going, they ended up going with the version by Trisha Yearwood. However, it will become Leanne Rhymes' biggest hit. And then it, her version ends up going number two for like five consecutive weeks in 1997. So Warren wrote the four original songs in the movie, Can't Fight the Moonlight, Please Remember, The Right Kind of Wrong, and But I Do Love You. With Can't Fight the Moonlight going to, was going to be the single from the movie, um, Curb Records was not into it and wouldn't promote it. And they were like, kids don't know what the moonlight is. And Diane Warren's like, are you fucking kidding me? So they released it to the adult contemporary chart and it did well. And what ends up happening is it does so well internationally. In fact, it was the biggest song in Australia in 2001. A remix gets released and they shoot it back to the United States and re-release it. Um, And it goes from having been only number 71 on the U.S. charts to later being, I believe, number 11 on the pop charts in the U.S. So um, it does really well. The soundtrack gets released on August 1st, 2000. It will end up selling over 4 million copies and would later spawn a sequel soundtrack, which, as Adam Garcia points out in this Ringer piece, like, this soundtrack ends up making a lot of the movie much like Saturday Night Fever. Like if you've ever seen Saturday Night Fever, it's a super dark movie with a lot of problematic scenes, but people really remember it for the soundtrack. And I think Coyote Ugly is remembered for much more than that. There's like iconic fashion and what have you, but I think the soundtrack still very much resonates. But that's really kind of what I have about music and overall, you know, background and behind the scenes. I have a little bit about the release, but do you want me to hold off um, so that you go into casting? Sure. So so Coyote Ugly's casting was done by Bonnie Timmerman. She was a casting director for Trading Places, Chud, Karate Kid, Dirty Dancing, Glengarry Glen Ross, Armageddon, just for a little bit of context. (laughs) Since you had mentioned Armageddon earlier. (laughs) So to Bonnie's estimate, they saw around 5,000 women for various roles, maybe more. Some of the more famous people to come into audition were Christina Aguilera, Jessica Simpson, and Vanessa Carlton. Wow. She walked a thousand miles to make it to this audition. I did not write that joke. I just improv that off the cuff. Pew, pew. Adam Garcia, not the Hawkeye from CSI, which is what I thought when I was reading the Ringer piece, even though I have seen this movie, I was like, Adam Garcia's in this and just 
racking my brain. I was like, oh yeah, not that guy. An Australian actor, not the one that I was thinking of. He was discovered and ultimately hired for the role of Kevin O'Donnell thanks to his performance in the West End of Saturday Night Fever. Ah. Um, A musical other actors will cite, as you just mentioned, as a blueprint for turning Coyote Ugly into a Broadway jukebox musical whenever Broadway reopens. Adam almost screwed himself out of the role when they offered to fly him out to LA for a screen test. He initially said no because he was in the middle of shooting a dance short and didn't want to drop out and disappoint everybody. But his agent was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he got on a plane. Ultimately, they cast him by asking Piper Parabo to pick up his headshot and put it next to her face. And then they looked at it for a while and they're like, yeah, that's our guy. And apparently Piper's reaction to that was, what the fuck? This guy didn't have to do anything. I just had to pick up his picture, which I thought was a very funny soundbite. <laughs> Initially, the director, David McNally, who will go on to direct Kangaroo Jack starring Jerry O'Connell immediately following this, <laughs> really wanted in. I just feel like we got to point it out, right? Like we got to shine a light on it. <laughs> Because I feel like if you're going to go on to make Kangaroo Jack, you should not be demanding that an actor can also sing and play an instrument. Our girl, Piper Parabo, though, she was an unknown at the time. She went into this audition blind when they asked her, or actually, I don't even know if they asked her. She told the casting director that she knew how to play guitar, even though she didn't. So while she was making her first big, quote unquote, Hollywood movie, Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> heard of it. The director of that movie, and I had to... I had to include his name because it's a weird name. Des McNuff. <laughs> I just fucking can't. I was like, that's not. Well, you're, when you were born, your parents were like, yes, that's my son, Des McNuff. Like, I just, that's God. not real to me. Anyway. You, you are born. Des, if, though. If you, that kind of name, you are like born with like a Kangol beret hat. Like, I feel that like this directness. Don't you feel like you either have to, yes, you, you're either born with a Congo hat and like a goatee or your parents are wasps. Like, I feel like wasps, I like, can get away with like, oh, yeah. oh yes, my name is Biff. Daphne. Like, yeah. you know, I Biff. <laughs> The first time Muffy. I met a real Buffy, I met a real Buffy in Connecticut once. And I was like, oh my God, like the vampire slayer. And she said, what? And I was like, oh no, I do not belong here. Must leave immediately. Anyway. The direct, the future director of Kangaroo Jack really wanted Piper to be able to play and sing. And so Des McNuff taught her on the set of Rocky and Bullwinkle how to play the guitar so she could nail her call back. Piper ended up having a very similar backstory to the lead character of Violet, which helped. Like Violet, Piper made her way across whatever tunnel it takes you from New Jersey to New York to pursue acting. Obviously, Violet was pursuing a music career, but you get it. After graduating college, Parabo moved to New York where she worked as a waitress, so adjacent to bartending, until she was cast in her first feature, a a low-budget comedy called White Boys with a Z. Mm. Uh, For the cinematic experience that will be known as Coyote Ugly, Piper learned how to play the guitar and keyboard and took voice lessons and initially performed the big song at the end, but then they hired producer Trevor Horn to work on the soundtrack and he tried to use Piper but determined that it would take too much work and it was too much of a job so they went to Jerry Bruckheimer and they did a casting call for vocalists as you were talking about and Jerry decided on a vocalist that Piper would lip sync to apparently Jerry Bruckheimer is notoriously picky when it comes to music though yeah I think it was Diane Warren that says in the Ringer article that he could listen to a hundred songs and maybe like two so when the shoot was over they had already shot the big final scene with Piper lip syncing to a different track. But Jerry Bruckheimer calls and he's like, hey, production, JK, I don't like this direction anymore. So we're going to pick a different person to sing the end song. And that's how we ended up with the. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Diane Warren, Leanne Rhymes, recorded hit, Can't Fight the Moonlight. And I said, gotta love that Con Air connection, baby, because I really love Con Air so much. Okay, so the audition process, because I thought this was very interesting. Because they really do talk a lot about it in the Ringer article and also in this piece that I saw on HuffPo that was also was like maybe like a year older than the um, Ringer one. So unless you're Adam Garcia and you can just have a lead actress just hold up your headshot next to your face, turns out the audition process is pretty grueling for everybody. And Bonnie brings up in the 20 year retrospective that they vetted everybody thoroughly, even Ms. The Tyra Banks. So every person that came in for an audition for a Coyote Ugly Bar position had to dance to Prince's Kiss on a little like table bar platform that they constructed. Apparently, they did the same thing on Dirty Dancing. Since this was roughly 50% of this cast's first movie, a lot of them are very nervous. Bridget Moynihan talks about how she was really stressed out about it because she wasn't a trained dancer. So she just ended up relying on the skills that she coined while going out to clubs in New York. And that kind of gave her a boost of confidence that pushed her over the edge to eventually be cast. It was Isabella Miko who plays Cami. It was her first audition in her first movie. Born and raised in Poland, she moved to New York at 15 on a scholarship to the School of American Ballet. She got her audition for Coyote oh Ugly when she Wait. met with a big... <laughs> American Ballet? Like, like, it's like center stage. <laughs> Yeah, so she, I'm okay. So I, I will, I will get there. Hang on. Okay, so okay. she got the audition for Coyote Ugly when a meeting with a big agent ended, and he told her, "I'm not going to take you on, but I will send you to three auditions." It sounds very like fairy tale. So the first audition was Coyote Ugly. The second audition was Save the Last Dance, and the third audition was Center Stage. No. Yes. <laughs> Such a crazy story. I was like, "That's a that's a movie." Anyway. <laughs> Ultimately, she landed the role and it opened doors to other parts like Save the Last Dance 2 and Step Up All the all In. I was going to say All the Way Up. <laughs> you kind of missed an opportunity there, guys, of the Step Up franchise. Uh. Most recently, most recently, she appeared in on Hunters, which is that Jordan Peele Amazon show. Oh, right. They were going through boxes of resumes at a certain point and just bringing in people that they like the look of to be, you know, just to cast for bar patrons or behind the bar people. They were just really undecided. So when they pulled up Tyra Banks, she had to read for her part. And at the time, she was a model, but she really wanted to act. And when she came in, obviously the casting department thought, like, she's beautiful. She's a wonderful person, but she has to audition. I'm going to close out this audition process section with a little story about the most famous extra in the whole movie, Caitlin Olsen from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Truly amazing. Apparently she loves, she loves to be recognized for her part in Coyote Ugly. 
One, she calls it, quote, my best work, screaming in a bar. And two, the movie holds a special place in her heart because she got into the union because of it. She had one line on paper, but she decided to improv a bunch more just to make sure all of her lines got in. And I guess I thought it was so funny that they kept it. According to Caitlin, the story goes, quote, I started yelling things like, come to mama. And it was so much fun. But I felt bad for Adam because it looks like everyone's loud and raucous, but it was actually silent in there. And he had to get up there and dance. Everybody loves a striptease to dead silence. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to highlight a few of the key players from the cast, and then I'll hand it back over to you um, to close us out on Coyote Ugly and, you know, finally successfully fight the moonlight and, you know, move on to... (laughs) Keep going with this metaphor. Keep going with it. Yeah, the open pastures of Texas. It's been a... I've had such a long day. I'm so tired. Okay. So we're going to start with my favorite character, Maria Bello, Lil, the bar owner. Unlike her co-stars, Maria Bello had been at, had been in the acting game for quite a bit before Coyote Ugly came a howling. Movie-wise, for her, this comes between Payback with Mel Sugartits Gibson and Duets, which comes immediately after it with Gwyneth oh, Paltrow. Okay, I this is one of my favorite hate watch movies. Like, I will watch Duets? it. If it's, yes. It's like... It's, okay, I was it's, like, oh, do you <laughs> secretly love Payback? No, no, no. Duets, because it's such a random, I mean, it's Gwyneth, it's it's her dad directs it, Paul Giamatti's like, uh, like a newly inspired karaoke singer, Andre Brower's in it. Like, it's wild casting, like good people in what's otherwise a not great movie. <laughs> I have been told multiple times to watch it. I still haven't watched it. Maybe it'll be a bad movie night movie. Oh, and Huey but Lewis, of at course. at this point... Uh, at this point in Maria Bella's career, she's probably best known for being in ER. In Coyote Ugly, though, she plays Lil, the tough but fair bar owner that gives Violet her big chance and then takes it away and then kind of helps her get it back again. Bella experienced some good old-fashioned sexism while on set. She was told that she couldn't participate on the dancing on the bar because she was, quote, too old. She was 32 at the time. She argued for it because she had worked at Hogs and Heifers, which is the equivalent bar of Coyote Ugly, also in real life, but... The movie was mostly run by all men, as you had talked about, all male producers and male directors. And as we know and see with our own eyes in the movie, she did not get up on the bar and dance. Which is hilarious because like 20 years later in Magic Mike, like we, I mean, granted, very different audience, like a different type of bar there. But like Matthew McConaughey got to do a striptease in Magic Mike and was like a good 20 years older than her. I think it's, you already covered, I mean, you put it, you put it together already it's time that it was shot it was a male director and that's just sort of how it goes it's not something that would definitely fly at all if they were to remake this or do a sequel or whatever god do not remake it do not reboot it but nope if they were to that would not have been a thing that happened she would have danced on the bar so now on to Tyra Banks, a.k.a. Zoe, before asking Carol Baskin if she killed her husband on Dancing with the Stars, even before America's Next Top Model, Tyra poured a pitcher of water on herself to Kid Rock. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Tyra, Tyra's first big screen role was in 1994 when she co-starred in Higher Learning. She then went on to be on Life Size, followed by Love Stinks and Love and Basketball, before she landed the role of Zoe, a college student in in Coyote Ugly. In a 2018 interview with People, she shared that she's quote-unquote dying to do a sequel. Quote, I want to produce it. I just need to get the rights from Mr. Jerry Bruckheimer or work with him. (laughs) I love Tyra's just like, everything's negotiable. Obviously, either like buy it or I get him to say yes or something, but I will make it happen. Anyway, I was just going to, I was going to close it out by saying she's now a host of Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) I hope she never changes. She's perfect. 
I mean, Bridget Moynihan. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no. I mean, truly she is just, it's, it's Tyra. Like I just, I love that our season already has included two, not one, not two, but uh, three. three, including our mini episode reflections on Tyra Banks's career. I mean, I'm glad she's getting her, her, her time to shine on our podcast. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure that's exactly what her career needs is the time to shine <laughs> on our podcast over three episodes. Uh, on to someone who else needs a little bit of shine on a um, <laughs> very niche podcast. Bridget Moynihan is Rachel. So she was transitioning away from modeling when she auditioned for Coyote Ugly. And this is her big screen debut. When this movie was released to theaters, this was around the same time that she landed her role as Natasha Big's wife on yeah. Sex and City. And that's, you know, her whole big thing. And then, you know, I had to talk about my girl, Monica Linsky, a.k.a. Gloria. Melanie had a handful of roles under her belt before Coyote Ugly, but here she plays Violet's New Jersey-based BFF, Gloria. By 1999, the New Zealand native had already appeared in Detroit Rock, The Cherry Orchard, Shooters, and But I'm a Cheerleader. And she's a perfect character actor, still working till today. We stand a Melanie Linsky. And then Always. just a real quick Piper post Coyote pre-slapper, she's French. Just two real quick bullet points that I think, you know, they made me laugh. Uh, well, one made me laugh, and the other one, I was just like, huh, what an interesting movie that I don't want to watch. So first and foremost, she won an MTV Movie Award for Best Music Moment for her one way or another performance, which is like that part where she breaks up the fight that you were talking about. Yeah. And then after the success of Coyote Ugly, she decided that the move was to star in an independent Canadian drama in yeah. 2001 called Lost and Delirious, starring Jessica Paré of Mad Men and Misha Barton of The Hills Reboot. And that is... <laughs> I mean, what stronger way to go out about that than to talk about Misha Barton Hills reboot star. I did remember like deep diving into Lost and Delirious as I was doing research for this uh, episode and remembering like the premise of that movie. And again, male gaze. Um, but like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, really, all I have to say about Coyote Ugly, it, you know, in terms of its release, what's crazy, of course, is like it gets released in August of 2000, despite mixed to negative reviews from critics, though, it goes on to make $113 million on a $45 million budget, which again, crazy Bruckheimer money here. But uh, it currently holds a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, but has a 71% audience score and is you know, 100% in our hearts. Well, no, not 100. I mean, there's some problematic shit there, but like I, I'd give it a 90% in my heart. I genuinely feel like 73 is fair. Yes, yes. Ultimately, this movie will become a cult hit thanks to its longevity and becoming a sleepover staple for millennial girls. Again, perfect encapsulation of early 2000s fashion. We'll go on to really love the cowboy look for a while as a society. And then Lil, the real Lil Lavelle, will use this commercial set success as an opportunity to turn Coyote Ugly into a chain. Before the pandemic, I don't know if they still all exist, there were 29 franchises based all over the world from Cardiff to Singapore. Now, Coyote Ugly even has its own line of merchandise featuring branded racing gloves and thongs. That's Coyote uh, Ugly. Cool. <laughs> Shall we move on to Slapper She's French or yes. She Gets What She Wants? Sure. Okay, so this this little known movie, because I'm assuming most of you, this is possibly, unless you are someone that 
went to this premiere with me and there are maybe two of you that listen that went to this premiere with me have heard of this movie. So I, I can account that two people know possibly the synopsis. But if you are not familiar, don't feel bad. I'm about to, well, I wouldn't say enlighten because, you know, I'm not doing anyone any favors here. But here we go. High school student Starla Grady is the popular head cheer- cheerleader and pageant queen of the small town of Splendora, Texas, who aspires to be a news anchor woman. She hosts a French foreign exchange student, an orphan named Genevieve Le Proof. After winning the affections of Starla's parents, friends, and boyfriend, Genevieve soon begins to take over Starla's life. After Starla is forced to quit the cheerleading squad when she receives a failing grade in French, Genevieve moves in to take her place. Soon, Genevieve is the popular head cheerleader and takes over the news anchor competition. News, anchor, and competition, the N, the A, and the C are all capitalized. So please know that that's a a proper competition that is taking place (laughs) in this film. Later, Genevieve Frame. uh, Me too. When it came back at the end, I was like, wait, what? Yes, yes. More on that later. (laughs) Quite the tease, yes. Later, Genevieve frames Starla, gets her arrested for possessing a knife and getting high on mushrooms. It is later revealed that Genevieve was, in fact, a former elementary school classmate named Clarissa Fogolessi. (laughs) I fucked that one up, but it doesn't really matter because she's not a real person, so I can mess up that last name. Whom Starla embarrassed so much that she felt compelled to move to France and come back in disguise to get revenge on Starla. So I feel like this movie would really benefit from a real oral history because what I'm about to give you, unfortunately, will not be satisfying. So the film was originally written by Lamar Damon and Robert Lee King with a rewrite by Alan Ball, who has written True Blood, Six Feet Under, a a bunch of great movies. Alan Ball's great. The original director, Evan Dunsky, was replaced by Babysitter's Club director and 30-something actress, Melanie Mayron, 10 Days Into Shooting. This was Melanie Mayron's second feature film. Shot on location in Dallas-Fort Worth in 2001, Robert Lee King has written and directed 60s parody Psycho Beach Party, which should account for some of the movie's slapsticky kind of tone. Yeah, Although it comes across, yes, but it comes across at least to me today, 2020 eyes, is more sitcom-y more than anything else. But Would what they agree. were trying to go for, yes, what they were trying to go for was a Clueless Does South Fork tone, but I'm like, you guys are in Texas, not in South Fork, but whatever, what do I know? I guess it worked, maybe? Some of the reviews from the time, and I concur with this, said that if the dialogue were sharper and the character slightly less cliche, it could have been elevated to cult movie status. But instead, it sort of meanders in the middle and then it makes it kind of forgettable by the end. It was released in German-speaking Europe, so just Germany, I guess, and Austria, in February of 2002. And then it gets a little confusing. IMDb says the film was released via film festival in the U.S. in April of 2002, but that it had the widest TV release in 2005. A slight detour, anecdote, personal story that I will blow through as quickly as possible. I went to the premiere of this movie probably 8th, ninth grade, 2001-2002 time, and when my friends and I exited the film... We thought it was the funniest movie we had ever seen. We told everyone at school about it. We quoted it. We couldn't wait to see it again in theaters. And then it just like never really came out. And then finally, years later, we're kind of like going through channels or whatever. And I can't remember who stopped on it, but one of the four of us, and we were able to see this movie. I'm sorry, I didn't give any context, but we were able to see this movie because a friend's father worked on the music. And so they were able to bring us along to the premiere, which is extremely kind. And it was a really fun red carpet event at like um, Man's Chinese Theater on uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. So that was like, you know, when you're 13, you're like, oh, oh my God, like it's celebrity. It's amazing. 
But we watched the movie. We loved it. We thought it was so, so funny. We're like, can't wait till it comes out. This movie's insane. Like, it's like so, you know, I don't think we said subversive, but like I wanted, you know, that was the vibe <laughs> that if I had the vocabulary at the time, I would have said it's so subversive. Like you've never seen anything like it. But one day in, in I believe like 2004, 2005, I don't remember who came across it first, but someone came across it on TV. They're like, oh shit, that slapper she's French movie is on, but it's called She Gets What She Wants. And the edit was much more tame. It was a really safe cut, totally different from anything that we'd seen at the premiere. And it was pretty impossible now to kind of crack the nut as to what happened. I can probably guess my best guess is that it just didn't test well after it had the premiere. And so it got edited and then unedited and then re-edited. And as we've found out through, you know, our various music episodes that at some point an exec will leave or get fired. And then this movie just kind of like hangs out and some people maybe pick it up and champion it. But then, you know, the high turnover or just the short memory, it just keeps getting pushed off. And then finally someone just sees it and they're like, well, we're sitting on this. We should just release it. And I think that's my best guess at what happened. But I'd be very curious to also understand a little bit more about why the original director was replaced. I'm not upset about the babies the original babysitters club director coming in and doing this movie although i feel like maybe if she was on from the beginning it maybe would have been a different possibly better movie yeah i mean for me i think one of the biggest things that i found myself thinking over and over again as i was watching this because i had never seen it until this past weekend i had seen like fragments here and there if it had been on tv or like clips but um it felt like Fragments of other movies had made their way into this like composite of of like what a dark oh, teen comedy Emily. should look like. In my watch thoughts, uh, the very first thing I write is this movie so badly wants to be drop dead gorgeous, and I oh, think for it sure. has it wants the same tone. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You want to get into a bit of the whatever you've got left over from the casting. Sure. I know this was sort of a really opaque movie to try and figure out but you know without you know um any connects into talking to anybody that had a relationship with this movie i don't talk to the friend we lost touch over the years the friend that took us to the premiere so i can't really interview her dad or anything like that but i'd be curious to know if one day it gets some sort of resurgence especially being on amazon maybe more people will watch it or not who knows yeah I don't know. I mean, hard so to tell. Hard to tell. I mean, after Piper Parabo does Rocky and Bullwinkle and Coyote Ugly, she decides that she wants to go towards more indie films. She does Lost and Delirious. Um, interestingly enough, her next role after Slap Her, She's French is going to be playing the oldest baker kid in Cheaper by the Dozen with Steve Martin and Bonnie uh, oh. Hunt. And Hillary Duff. And Hillary Duff and Tom Welling. Like, it's a lot of old millennial crossover there. We haven't talked about Smallville, though. Um, Jane McGregor, who plays Starla, is very much like Canadian actress in the sense that prior to this, she had been in a few other things, but most of her work had been Canadian movies, a few TV shows, and a few TV movies, including an episode of the Disney Channel original show, So Weird, and the TV movie Noah. Oh. Yes. And I had forgotten about this TV movie Noah, but I definitely saw it because it was like Wonderful World of Disney on ABC. It's this modern adaptation of Noah's Ark where Tony Danza plays a contractor who's been tasked by an angel played by Wallace Shawn to rebuild Noah's Ark. Just the wildest <laughs> premise for a movie that I would gladly suggest for Bad Movie Night. Um, 
Add it to the list. And I will add that to the list. So after this movie, um, Jane McGregor will go on to do a few minor roles in TV and movies. She's had a recurring role on the Canadian show Robson Arms, but really hasn't done too many high profile things um, other than being in a few episodes of Supernatural, The 4400, Fringe, and Fargo. Um, as for Trent Ford, who, oh my God, we texted right before this, totally forgotten about the before, like researching this movie that Trent Ford was a thing. Like Hollywood tried to make him a thing. He was like on, you know, YM and teen magazines, like when he was in how to deal with Mandy Moore, I remember like he was kind of an alternative guy. Like he's scrawny, but he's like kind of rocker cute and he's British. That was the other thing. Like I found his American. Yes. Yeah. So I found his American. I didn't know that at all. Yes. It was interesting because at the beginning, you don't understand that he's from Albany, but like he has a very strange American accent. It took me a while to place it considering everyone had like comical Texas accents. Like it wasn't just like a Texas accent. It was a Texas accent. Um, He had been in Gosford Park before this. So I was like, wow, to have gone. (laughs) You start out, got Robert Altman film. I mean, honestly, so I've seen maybe every Trent Ford movie by accident because I loved Gosford Park in like middle school for some reason. I just thought it was so, so funny. It's a great movie. This is comedy. This is art. Like, I just thought I was like so, like, a fucking intellectual eighth grader. (laughs) So, yes, I've seen almost every Trent Ford movie. I'm telling you, he is, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, Alden Ennenreich or whatever, fucking solo. Like, he was, they really wanted him to be a thing. They wanted him to be a thing. if he was discovered at a bar mitzvah by Steven Spielberg, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> he has not done really anything since 2015. In terms of some of the other cast members, Michael McKean, who plays Monsieur Duke, is, well, Michael McKean, and surprisingly not featured on the cast list on the Wikipedia page, which I found kind of shocking. Um, around That's the, hilarious. This movie gets sandwiched into his like Christopher, like his best Christopher guest appearances. Like he had just been in Best in Show and was on the short-lived Kevin Smith connection here, short-lived animated TV adaptation of the movie Clerks, which I forgot had been a thing. Um, after oh, yeah. this, yes, yeah. After Slap Percy's French, he'll go on to be in A Mighty Wind in 2003 and will continue his very successful career in TV and film. Um, most of you who are listening will know who Michael McKean is. Really, he's, I would say he's the biggest name in this movie other than Piper Parabo. And I would say, like, in terms of longevity. I would totally agree. Um, I would totally agree with you on that. I mean, one of my notes is just Michael McKean, all caps, exclamation points. And then uh, I think this movie has a lot of actors where you're like, you look like someone else. So one other. Like the dad. Yes. Particularly Starla's dad looked like Dan Aykroyd to me. I had to keep doing a double take. He had a little Bobo Aykroyd energy. And I would argue, (laughs) I forget who, Uh I forget who plays in Anchorman. um, What's that actor's name? I'm blanking on his name, not Will Ferrell, not Paul Rudd, not Steve Carell, but the fourth guy. In oh, the- Rob Codry, not Rob no. Codry, but the other. But um, you know who I'm talking about, that guy, yeah. like a little bit of that Not energy. Rob Riggle. No. What the fuck is his name? It's gonna no, come- Dave. 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 Uh, oh, I know what you're, I see it. Like I see. <laughs> Dave Hawkshin. Hawken? Hawken? No. Hawk- no. Hawk- no. Anyway. What? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm gonna hold on. I'll Google David Keckner. David Keckner. Okay, so Hawkin. he's he's Hawkin. got like I don't know. David is like Bobo David Keckner energy. Um, the other person I wanted to point out in this cast is Matt Shukri. Um, her her boyfriend at the beginning who had done an episode mm-hmm. of Freaks and Geeks and had a recurring role on that WB show, The Young Americans. This was his bir- big first film role. After this movie, he's an eight-legged freaks, which I had forgotten about, but I was a part of a test group. Like, I was at a Tower Records. This is like the most early 2000s sentence. I was at a Tower Records in D.C. with my mom in middle school, and they were doing testing audiences for the trailer for Eight-Legged Freaks. So they made you watch the video in Tower Records, and then you would say if you liked it or not. I don't remember what I said. Um, but after that, he'll be, he's Logan on Gilmore Girls, Rory's college boyfriend who sucks. Um, and then he's also Tucker Max in the oh, film God. adaptation of I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, which I, oh, I forgot about Tucker. Oh, that's why he yes! Yes! yes, I'd forgotten all about the book, the movie, Tucker Max, bro culture. I mean, I never forgot about bro culture, but like that aspect of bro culture. Um, But he's gone on to star in The Good Wife and The Resident, where he is, in fact, The Resident, much like our good doctor. No crossovers yet, unfortunately, with The Good Doctor. But potential, right? Yeah. I'm I'm thinking there's potential here. There was one other actress whose name I, and for some reason I've lost in my notes, but she played um, the girl who hooks up. She was one of the two best friends. She plays the girl who hooks up with Sherman in American Pie and, or like they, they, they don't hook up. They just like, I think spend an evening together or something. And like Sherman, the Shermanators like talks about how like they hooked up and then she like rats him out at prom and he like pees his pants or something like that on stage. But she's that girl. That's that's really all I had in terms of like highlights from the cast. The other thing I wanted to point out about this movie, I don't remember the little brother's actor's name, but he's one of the few little brothers that I've actually liked in a movie, like actually enjoyed that character and thought he was funny. Um, but yeah, that was that's really what I have from a casting standpoint. Um, nothing, no other big standouts. I mean, for me, it was just funny to see Matt Shukri in that movie because I, I just know him as Logan on Gilmore Girls, but uh, yeah, very interesting cast. That's so funny. Yep. I mean, I feel like we've already sort of touched on how we feel about the movie. I mean, I guess all that's left to say is I would recommend watching the movie just as sort of a relic of the time. And it's, you know, it's an hour and a half. It goes by pretty quickly and you can fast forward through some of it, but I would recommend watching Slapper She's French if you have Amazon streaming. Em, would you recommend the movie? Yeah, I mean, have fun with it, you know? Um, I, I do want to point out one thing, though. At the end, there is a TV anchor person competition. Oh, right. Sorry. That, my, no, last, no. my last note is this reveal twist is actually good, but this competition is made up. What so, kind of competition on. gives you a specific scholarship to a specific college? Is it implied that if you win this competition, you are both accepted to Wellesley and you get a scholarship to Wellesley? Do you have to be a woman to win this competition as Wellesley, if I recall correctly, is still an all-female school that may have changed in the last few years? Or is it like you get this scholarship if you get accepted to Wellesley? I don't know, but the premise is wild. rules are not clear. Starla wanting to go to Wesley makes no, like, there's no hint. Like, she just talks about, and this is sort of, like, 
what she has in common with Drop Dead Gorgeous is like, I want to be a news anchor. I want to be like, you know, I want to be a famous news anchor on like Good Morning America because it's a big deal to like greet America in the morning. But why does she want to go to this college? That's never established. This competition is actually not really well established. We start at a beauty pageant, then we end at a, like I said, news capital N, anchor capital A, competition capital C, so fucking vague. I don't even realize it was like for a scholarship to a specific college that like you said, who even knows if you actually even get in? Do you get in when you get this scholar? Like, are they are they married together? Are they exclusive? Like, or are they I not? It's unclear, unclear. But also the premise of the competition is unhinged. Yes. So you have to, uh, you have to like research your own piece and then present it. And then there's also an audience. Like, that's not, what? I have so many, I have like 48 questions at minimum. And you most certainly could not just fill in for someone else's spot for a scholarship competition if they don't show up. Well, everything that she fills in for though, like the cheerleading. I mean, I I, I was about to say, I'm like, I can accept the cheerleading because I'm like, whatever. I'm sure sure maybe it's like a, you know, a freewheeling, like let's let the foreign student do it. But like the fucking scholar, like it's going to be whatever. You have to apply to scholarships. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? I don't know. It was insane. I don't know. Why? But I did love the reveal. You know, I love a good old fashioned like roll the tape. And then I also like that. I thought it was very satisfying that she doesn't get everything that she. Neither of them get anything that they want in the end. So that's satisfying. But yes, I, I would have just asked. I mean, I feel like the ending is sort of abrupt, and like I hate the prologue of her. You know, doing a reverse. Genevieve and or a, a Starla in France or whatever that ending is, but it's fun. It's stupid. Um, I don't know. I did laugh some some of the time. Some of the jokes are a little tough. Um, you know, in twenty twenty, <laughs> some of them are like, okay, that's a yikes from me, dog. So I don't know, but I would still recommend watching it. Sure. I one final thing I will say. Um, I was curious about that French bitch song that plays throughout the movie. <laughs> Um, and I want, I, I'm sad that you're not friends with this girl anymore because her dad was the music supervisor, the band. Okay. So the song is called French bitch and it's by a band called pussy Tourette, which I will be Googling after we finish recording this episode. That even sounds familiar. Maybe they were on a Coachella lineup from 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know if I ever told you this, but John was very upset. John Cross was not happy that we didn't invite him onto the episode to talk about it because apparently he just ended up screaming at his phone the whole time. Like, I know who that band is. I'm like the whole point is that we don't know who that band is. Don't tell me. But he still told me. I've already forgotten what it is. So don't remind me. I don't know. I don't know either. But anyway, <laughs> um, Pussy sounds familiar. Like, I, I don't know. I'll have to ask Marianne, like, did we see this band at the CIA, which was like this shitty DIY, like music venue in North Hollywood? I think that still exists. Um, and it was like clown circus themed Ooh, tale for another time. Mm-hmm. Any other last thoughts on just Piper Barbo in general? And just, you know, she was nominated for a Golden Globe for COVID Affairs. So, you know, she's doing well. Yeah. I mean, honestly, she's interesting career. I align with her politics. Um, and, you know, she will always hold a place in my heart because of Coyote Ugly. Like, I, I cannot, I can't not stand Piper Parabo. I would truly be surprised if Tyra doesn't get some sort of 
musical sequel, getting Mr. Jerry Bruckheimer on the phone kind of business going on, you know. Plus, she now works at ABC. Jerry Bruckheimer works a lot with Disney. And I think there was also some weirdness about now Disney owns, technically owns <laughs> Coyote Ugly, because I believe it was like a Fox picture. And so, like, that's a little odd. And anyway, that has that's some other some side production speculation. Instead, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening to an episode, another episode, possibly this is your first episode of Old Millennials Podcast. I hope you had a good time listening to us talk about Piper Parable, but mostly Coyote Ugly and how it holds a special place in all of our hearts. If you had a great time listening to this episode and you want to listen to more episodes, the best way to do that is to subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe and listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts, which I think is what we're calling it now, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, oh, yes. Emily, Pocket am Cast. I forgetting one? Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast. Oh, yes, all, yes. All of the pod, wherever you can listen to a podcast, except SoundCloud, we're not on SoundCloud anymore. Sorry, SoundCloud. You can listen to us there. Also, a great way to keep in touch with us is to follow us on the socials. We are at The Old Millennials Pod on Facebook and on Instagram. We also sometimes write a blog. Emily's going to write one about the Baja men. Watch her spiral in real time. On Medium, we are Old Millennials Pod. We've got a lot of fun music appreciation posts up there, a couple corresponding posts with our season three up there as well. If you are, I don't know, listening to this in any sort of order because Lord knows this show does not beg you to listen to it in a specific order. So have fun on the Medium page. Also, a great way to support this podcast, if you are interested in doing that, is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We greatly appreciate it. Also, if you would like to follow us, finally, if you'd like to follow us, if that feels like a thing you feel like doing, we are on Twitter individually. I am at Marg, she wrote. And I'm at Emily A. Bejen. And we will... See you next week for another episode from the depths of the late 90s and early 2000s. Bye-bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.